0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you increases your love and knowledge of Jesus and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name's Carter. I am a pastor here at Citizens. I'm not the one who normally preaches. Joey is, uh, but he uh, is actually, I think, on his way to the hospital. I just got a text. So they're about to have their baby. So in preparation for that, a couple of weeks ago, he asked me to fill in. Yeah, it's exciting. So we're we'll definitely make sure to pray for them here in a second. Uh, like I said, I'm a pastor here. I also work full-time at the Naval Academy, which you guys just heard them a second ago. But a lot of you, uh, both the mids and then maybe some people that are new to the church, haven't been coming here this summer. So I'm going to do a quick recap of what we've been going through. We've been going through the book of Daniel. Um, specifically focusing on the theme of being exiles, what it looks like as Christians to be in exile like Daniel was in exile. And uh, today we're going to continue that theme, but more specifically, I really want to focus on what our hope is as exiles. What is our hope as Christians living in a hostile world, in a world that is not our ultimate home? Do we hope in winning the culture war? Do we hope in finding small comforts to get us along the way? Or do we have a far more robust hope that we cling to? As exiles, we are not ultimately hoping in winning the culture war or having our politician elected. What we are ultimately hoping in rests in the resurrection. And that hope changes everything about how we live right now. So for the Christians in the room, people that have made Jesus Lord of their life, this sermon should challenge you to reflect on life and answer the question, do I live my life right now considering my future resurrection? Do my actions, my attitude reflect to the outside world that I have a hope greater than this life? But this sermon is also really, really important for the skeptic or the casual believer in here. And I'm not going to make a robust, apologetic defense for the resurrection, but I hope that you leave here with the importance of figuring out what you believe is going to happen when you die. Because ultimately, the resurrection does change everything. And I'm going to level with you guys. This is going to be a tough sermon. I'm going to challenge you. Yes, we're discussing the joyous reality of the resurrection, but wrapped up in that hope is a really difficult life of self-sacrifice a hope, a life lived for God and not for ourselves. But I want you to know I'm standing up here not as a preacher who has this figured out, not at all. This has been one of the more difficult sermons for me to write, more convicting than anything, because I'm bad at this. I don't live these things out well in my own life, which I believe is probably true for a lot of us in here also. So with that said, we're going to be focusing on what the resurrection reverses in our lives now. It should be on the screen behind me, but the three points are going to be the resurrection reverses the effects of our sin, the resurrection reverses how we view suffering, and the resurrection reverses the power of death. So with that, we're going to pray, and then we'll get started. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for this day, this time that we have together to worship you, to sing praises, to you to recognize what Christ has done for us on the cross and to recognize the implications of what has happened when he was raised from the dead. That that resurrection, Christ's resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago is directly tied to our resurrection. So we pray, God, now that you will move in us, that you will guide me as I preach right now, Lord. And Lord, we also pray for Rebecca, for Joey at the hospital, that Rebecca's labor will go well, it will be easy, and that they'll have a beautiful baby girl for us all to meet next Sunday. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we get into 1 Corinthians 15, what uh, Andrew just read, I want to quickly give the background of what Paul arrives at, how he arrives to this chapter uh, in 1 Corinthians. So, the letter of 1 Corinthians is essentially a letter... Full of Paul addressing problem after problem after problem of how the Corinthian church has gotten wrong slash distorted the true way that Christians are supposed to live. See, Paul left them with uh, instructions on this is how you live righteously, this is how you live out your Christian life, and they've pretty much gotten everything wrong. Throughout the chapters preceding 15, Paul addresses topics such as sex, unity, Worship, the Lord's Supper, and many other things that the church has gotten wrong. I kind of think of it like this. Uh, Katie, she's probably worried I'm bringing her up now in the sermon. Katie loves doing puzzles, right? That's one of those extremely relaxing hobbies for her. And I absolutely hate them. I'm so bad at puzzles. I just, but what I love to do is I'll sit with her while she's doing her puzzles, and I'll put pieces of the puzzle in the completely wrong spot, right? Just to mess with her. It gets really under her skin. You know, just jam it in where there's the, the sides don't match. It completely distorts the colors. And it just drives Katie crazy, and I love it. And that's kind of what's happening here with the Corinthian church, right? Paul has given them a completed puzzle. He said, this is the Christian life. Just follow this. And what they've done is they've taken pieces of that puzzle, and they've put them in completely wrong spots, or they've just kind of thrown them away. And Paul's rightfully so disturbed. He's aggressive in his letter back to them. And when you get to chapter 15, Paul begins to address the doctrine of the resurrection. And he has to do this because the Corinthian church, what they've been doing, people in the church, are teaching that Christ did not have an actual physical bodily resurrection, which Paul strongly rebukes. See, Paul is connecting Christ's resurrection with our future resurrection. And so throughout the chapter, chapter 15, he reminds them that the gospel, he reminds them of the gospel. And then in verse three, he says, this is of most importance. What I gave to you was of most importance, first importance. Paul is saying the gospel, which culminates in the resurrection of Christ, is the most important belief you have. If all the other practices of faith have been addressed up to this point are pieces of the puzzle, the resurrection are the legs of the table the puzzle is sitting on. If you move them, the puzzle is crashing down. He's saying nothing else matters if we don't get this. And this passage has been so convicting for me because I realize that although intellectually I understand the resurrection, I believe in the resurrection, both Christ and my future resurrection, I don't allow that to come into the now to affect me how I live now. It's like something that will happen. But it has great importance now, and that's what Paul is talking about in chapter 15. So with that, we are go to it. Chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 16 with our first point, that the resurrection reverses the effects of sin, how we view sin in our lives. So verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So remember, the Corinthian church is not believing in the resurrection. And what Paul is doing here is he's kind of playing devil's advocate. He's saying, okay, let's assume you're right. Let's assume that the resurrection really didn't happen. With this assumption, Paul comes to two conclusions, or comes to a conclusion, that your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So what does it mean to have a futile faith? What it means is that the outworkings of our faith, the love we display to others, sacrifice, unity, worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all of these actions we take because we believe that Christ has really risen. Paul is saying, "Look, if you believe, if you do not believe in the resurrection, then what's all this for? You still would be in your sins. But to understand this connection, we have to, make, we have to come to a consensus of What what we mean by sin, by sin, Paul's talking about our brokenness, our badness, our desire to do things for ourselves, not for others. Sin is the disease that causes us to ignore what God has commanded of us and instead do whatever our hearts desire, whatever we feel in the moment And it's interesting. I've been having this conversation somewhat often at the yard, but something that comes up a lot when I'm speaking with people is they say, "Aren't all religions pretty much the same? Why should I believe in Christ versus Allah or Shiva?" And I agree there are a few things that are similar across pretty much every world view, and I would say the most common similarity between Christianity and the other religions is the problem of sin. Every religion, every worldview is stuck with the problem that there is a higher power, a higher good that is righteous, and we as humanity have failed to meet that standard. The problem is something every single worldview shares. Every worldview says that there is a standard of righteousness, and some people end up making it to it, and some people don't. And every word view, except for Christianity, says that to be found good in front of that higher power, one must actually be good. One must rise to the occasion and exhibit a standard of goodness that is approved by the higher power. But where Christianity varies when answering the problem of sin is it says, you are never going to reach that standard on your own. So the problem of sin is a huge one. Has anyone ever seen uh, the TV show The Good Place? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. All right. It's funny. You know, it's a pretty good show. It's a good show. Uh, If you haven't seen it, I'm pretty much going to spoil it now anyway, so sorry about that. But the premise of the show is the afterlife. There's a good place, which is kind of a Hollywood style of heaven, and then there is a bad place, which is like hell. And without giving everything away, the main protagonist ends up finding out that pretty much everyone, no one, sorry, ever makes it to the good place. The standard of goodness slash morality needed to make it to the good place has risen so high over the years that for years and years and years, no one has been admitted in. It's almost comical that a Michael Schur comedy show kind of nails it about this standard we're talking about. See, we have a perfect holy God, so the standard of goodness that is required to be before him, to be right before him, is unattainable in ourselves. We're not capable of doing it. What is demanded is perfection, and we cannot achieve it. So every other religion's antidote to the disease of sin is to be better, do more, act right, but it's ineffective. We as humanity are not capable of achieving that standard, but the God of the Bible is not content with allowing his creation, his people, to be left for dead in their sin. So he sent Christ to die and raise him from the dead to conquer the problem of sin once and for all. God himself took on flesh, took on our sin, and died the death we deserved. Romans 4 says it like this, Romans 4, 23 through 25. It's talking about Abraham. It says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. That's all of us, Christians, people that profess Christ. It would be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and what? Raised for our justification. Christ was killed, dead, died for our sin, and he was raised for our justification. So so what Paul's saying here in Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 7, he's saying to the Corinthians, it, if that resurrection doesn't happen, if that resurrection did not happen, then you wouldn't have that justification. You would not be able to be right before God. You would be dead in your trespasses, therefore your faith is futile. It's just, guys, it's so, so vitally important to get this, to understand how the resurrection affects us now. The resurrection changes everything when it comes to your sin. You no longer are unrighteous. You are righteous before God. Sin has lost its teeth now. It has no sting for those who profess Christ. Do you see the brevity of that? Christ has locked in your righteousness forevermore when you profess faith in him. Once and for all, he has defeated sin. Christ has said, it is finished so if you are a believer, the resurrection changes everything about how you should view your sin. Sin no longer has the ability to affect your righteousness. Look again at verse 17. When we asked that question earlier, what does it mean to still be in your sins? Well, what it means to be in your sin is that you are not justified. Sin still reigns. But because of the, resurre- the resurrection did happen... What we have to do is we have to stop allowing sin to shame us from approaching God. If you ever catch yourself thinking, I mean, this happens to me a lot, thinking I can't possibly go back to God and ask for forgiveness again. I asked him the same thing last night. I've asked him the same thing countless amount of times. He doesn't want me like this. I've chosen sin over him again and again and again, and he doesn't want me You're exactly who he wants. He who knew no sin became sin so that you may become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. He, Christ, who knew no sin became sin so that you, us, people that profess Christ, may become the righteousness of God. We can't forget that. As a believer, you are now the righteousness of God. So when you catch yourself thinking I can't approach God because of my sin. I can't approach God because I messed up again. What you're essentially saying is, I cannot approach God because, or I cannot, I, the righteousness of God, cannot approach God. The righteousness of God cannot go before God. That's absurd. That makes literally no sense. The resurrection has reversed how you and I, as Christians, should view our sin. No longer does sin have the power to keep you from God. Now that Christ has risen, let us approach God with full confidence, receiving mercy and grace. Which brings us to our second point, that the resurrection reverses how we as Christians view suffering. Paul is continuing his argument for the importance of the resurrection in verse 19. Read along with me. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are the most to be pitied. Now, that's a radical statement. Paul, again, still arguing from the opposition, the opposing, saying, okay, let's assume Christ didn't raise, he says that we as Christians are the most to be pitied if Christ does not raise. Paul's saying the, the Christian life, your faith, living for others and not for yourself, is pitiable if there is no resurrection. He's saying faith in of itself, without the promise of a future hope, is pitiable, not magnificent. But that's a a radical statement to me. It's radical because the values of Christianity are good in of themselves, aren't they? Surely the outside world wouldn't look at us and say a life of service and sacrifice are bad or pitiable. So why would Paul here say that it is? What is the connection that Paul is making between the resurrection of Christ and our joys in this world? I love Pastor John Piper's commentary on this verse. He tells a story of a monk that lives a life of solitude and silence Pretty much he only ends up talking when he is confessing sins to other monks and singing praises of God. And, and this monk, I guess he kind of broke his cone of silence. He ends up getting interviewed by an Italian te- television program, and they ask him, if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true, that there is no God, what would you say about your life? And the monk responds, and he says, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in of themselves. Even without the promise of a future hope, I still will have used my life well. The monk is saying, Yes, of course. All of these things, everything I've built my life around, is good in of, in of itself, meaning they stand alone as purposeful. But Piper continues and he points out that what the monk just said stands in stark contrast to the point that Paul is making in verse 19. In verse 19, we see the life of the Christian should be the most pitiable life to the outside world. But why would Paul say this? He says this because at its core, the Christian life is a life of real suffering, intense suffering. Look at Paul's life. Probably the greatest Christian sufferer of all time, his life was filled with suffering because he consistently put the glory of the Lord before himself, meaning that he knew that this world had what, what it had to offer is worthless in comparison with his future glory. That's what prompts him in verse 32 of this same chapter, a couple verses later. He says, If I fought with beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hope, meaning only this world was here. If I fought beasts and Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying here is, of course, I put myself at the mercy of the world, into dangers and into peril, into suffering. I do it for God. I do it, and I'm able to do it because I know that my future hope is secured. But if it isn't, if my future hope is not assured, then I have wasted my life. Why suffer at all in this world if this is all we get? Paul is saying, if you live your Christian life as you're supposed to, if you constantly are giving of yourself for the kingdom of God, and it leads to nothing, you've wasted it. Might as well just stuff yourself with food and with drink now, because tomorrow we die. But praise God that Christ did raise which means we will raise, which means now in this life, we must emulate Paul. Our lives must be not for ourselves, not for our own comfort, but must be poured out as a drink offering to God. Paul recognized that this world had nothing to offer in comparison with his future glory. Therefore, he put himself at the mercy of the world to save it. And it's it's not just Paul. Look at Daniel. We've been talking about him for this whole summer. King after king offering Daniel the greatest treasures of their kingdom. And and what does Daniel say? Give it for yourself. Give it to someone else. Daniel can say this because he knew his great treasure was yet to come. The Bible is saturated with a theme of suffering. That as Christians, as exiles, we embrace suffering because we have a future hope that is not of this world. Therefore, we should be the ones embracing it. First Peter 5.10, it's on the screen behind me, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Matthew 5.10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you. And finally, Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you want to know what it looks like to live your life radically for God, passionately, For God, ask yourself, how do the non-believers in my circle, my friends that aren't believers, how do they view my life? What do they think of it? It must be so superficial to the outside world looking in to us Christians that claim to believe that the resurrection of our bodies will happen. It must look so superficial when they look at this and they see that we've built our lives around money, around things, around fame, around school, think about what we're doing. We're saying with our mouths that we believe all of these things are going to perish. Every single thing. Yet we cling to them as if they're the true treasure. As if we are like the Egyptians just filling our coffins with trinkets trying to take them into the afterlife. Don't confuse the perishable with the imperishable. Our lives should be the ones that people look at and they just say, why? Why do that? What did he, what did she have to gain from that? That should be the life of the Christian. And I'm not trying to convince any of us to go battle beasts in Ephesus. None of us are that cool. The reality is, Paul's life, the time in history that he lived to suffer for Christ is a lot different than how we are called now to suffer for Christ. But one thing that the Bible makes crystal clear, that transcends culture and time, is that the life of the Christian, the Christian has no right to choose comfort over faithfulness. For the Christian in China, that might be putting their life on the line to host a Bible study. For you here right now, it might be giving up a night of Netflix to love on that friend that's super difficult to love. At the academy, it might be sacrificing the perfect grades this semester so that you can be discipling people, involved in ministry. (laughs) And for some of us in this church, it might be going to small group, even if you're exhausted. Small group plug. You're welcome, Taylor. And guys, I recognize this is easier said than done. It's hard to do, to love people like this, to love people with no regard for yourself. To sacrifice like this. It's not easy, but with all my heart, I'm trying to impart, impart onto you the importance that we do it. The necessity that as Christians, we should be the ones living the uncomfortable life. We should be the ones risking our health, our emotions, our energy, and our time because this world is not our home. It's not all there is for us. So as we see in verse 19. And throughout scripture, the resurrection has brought a reversal of how Christians, how we should view suffering and uncomfortableness in this world. We should embrace it rather than flee from it. We should be the ones that pour out our lives for the people around us. We shouldn't be the ones safeguarding ourselves. And one more important cross-reference before we move on from this point. We read it early in the service, but Philippians 3, 8-11. in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's argument here goes like this. I lose everything, everything, so I may gain Christ. What does it mean to gain Christ? To know him, to know the power of his resurrection, and to share in his sufferings. Because Paul gains those things, everything else is rubbish. See, the world doesn't look at things like money or comfort or prestigious rubbish. Those are the pinnacles of life. They're what are supposed to be desired. That's the American dream. But those things are rubbish in comparison with knowing Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So if you get get one thing this morning, get this. The more that you gain Christ, meaning the more you know him, you know his resurrection, and you share in his sufferings, the more you gain Christ the more clearly you will see that the things of this world are rubbish. And the more you see that the things of this world are rubbish, the easier it will be for you to lose them, to let them go, to cast them away. The easier it will be for you to endure suffering and cling to the imperishable things in this life rather than the perishable. So we see that the resurrection reverses, as Christians, how we should view suffering. Which brings us to our final point, that the resurrection reverses the power of death. Read with me in verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. One thing that we tend to do as Christians, at least I know I do this, is I take foundational beliefs, you know, those, those Christian beliefs that we are not going to budge on, the Trinity, the gospel, the resurrection. And what we do is, is we tend to say, I'm, I'm not going to touch this again. Nothing's going to change about what I believe about this, so I'm just going to put it up here on the shelf. I know I'm, I don't need to think through what I believe about this. I'm going to put it up here on the shelf, which is good. We shouldn't change what we believe on those things. But what ends up happening, the danger of doing that is uh, we we stop thinking about it. We stop marinating on it. When we read it in Scripture, we skip over it almost. But these foundational beliefs that we believe in are the things that should stir the greatest worship in our hearts. What ends up happening is the gospel becomes mundane, something we know, we believe, so we don't really think about it, we don't marinate on it. But when we actually think of the resurrection of death and the resurrection, when we actually think about it, it's kind of insane. We actually literally believe the dead will rise. That's what we as Christians claim. That's crazy. But do we allow it to still shock us? When I was in college, I was discipled by a guy named Sean, an amazing man. He helped me grow on my walk with the Lord a lot. And one day, Sean's not a serious guy, but one day he takes me to a graveyard, and he's super serious. He says, Carter, for the next 30 minutes... I want you to walk around and declare the bodies in the graves to rise. And you can laugh. It's kind of a crazy thing, right? And he said, I want you to take it really seriously, Carter. And if you know me at all, I just, I couldn't stop laughing the entire time I'm doing it. I mean, I'm literally, I'm walking around and I'm just talking to random people in their graves saying like, hey, Jacob, uh, rise up. And there's just, you know, there's people there just visiting their dead relatives. (laughs) And they're just like, what is going on? so it was of course it was really funny and after 30 minutes 30 minutes of it I come back to Sean and he ends up explaining why we did this he wants me to see the extraordinary power of the resurrection he wanted me to see how final how unreversible death is so that I would have a greater appreciation for what Christ is doing in us for what happened to Christ in the resurrection and what will happen to us one day when we die. I needed to have a proper understanding of death so I would have a proper understanding of the resurrection. And death, I mean, it's something we don't talk about in society, right? We tend to ignore it, dismiss it, pretend pretend it doesn't exist. But as we have all experienced, death is not satisfied with being in the background. We lose a grandparent. A husband, a wife, a spouse, a brother, a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter. And suddenly, the topic of death comes like a tsunami into our lives, flooding everything. Our strategy for ignoring it didn't prepare us for its suddenness and its severity. Death is so real and so powerful in its ability to wreck our lives, which means that the resurrection is even that much more powerful and that much more great than death. Which Paul explains in these verses. If you look back at verse 20 through 22, he says that by a man came death. In Genesis 3, we know that man is Adam. The sin of Adam subjected all of humanity to sin. All of humanity now. Every person born is afflicted with sin and therefore with the curse of death. But in Jesus and in the resurrection, he made us alive. The most beautiful reversal of all is that death no longer reigns in our lives. Look what Paul says in verse 22. So in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. It's wonderful. Paul is wrapping up his argument for why the resurrection matters by proclaiming in Christ is life. And guys, this is one of those biblical truths that we tend to just know intellectually and we don't allow it to affect us now. We don't allow it to stir up worship in our heart, but what's more worshipful than this? Paul himself, can't, he can't contain himself. He's talking about this to the Corinthians and he kind of combusts into worship at the thought of it. Look at how he finishes the chapter 15, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, imper- nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. And this is it. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The resurrection is so powerful, it literally mocks death. Oh death, where is your victory? O death where is your sting? That's what the resurrection does to death. So to wrap up, as exiles, we are promised that this life will be hard. Of course it will. This isn't our home. It's going to be uncomfortable. But praise God that he is a God of the exiles. More than that, praise God that he sent his son to become an exile so that we wouldn't have to be it anymore. The victory is won for us when Christ raised from the grave, and now we will one day rise with him. But the resurrection doesn't just matter when we die. It's not something that will happen only. No, it changes everything for us now. Timothy Keller says it like this. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows... Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Sin has lost its teeth. Suffering has lost its sting. And death has lost its finality. So we have to live accordingly. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we are so, so thankful for you. We're so thankful that you are a God more than worthy for us to follow. That you are a God that was not content with allowing us to be dead in our sins, so you sent your Son to die and to conquer sin once and for all. And I pray now, Lord, for us in this room, including myself, that we will allow the truths of the resurrection to break into our now, to break into our reality and infiltrate and affect everything, our attitudes, how we treat others, how we give of ourselves. God, I also pray for anyone in here that is not following the Lord, that does not believe in the resurrection or does not desire to know you or to follow you. I pray, God, for their hearts, that they will see the importance of the resurrection. Lord, we know that you are so good. We know that you have the capability of working miraculously in our lives, and I pray now that you will do that. I pray this in your son, Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.